1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. We have an extraordinary guest from the world of entertainment with us today. If you're a fan of Broadway, you're going to love today's installment. And if you're not yet a fan of Broadway, well, you will be before the 54 minutes is up today. David Loud has done it all on Broadway. He's a music supervisor and director. He's a conductor, vocal and dance arranger, pianist, and actor who has worked with the absolute legends of Broadway. I'm talking about John Kander and Fred Ebb and the incomparable Stephen Sondheim. David Loud is also the author of Facing the Music, a Broadway Memoir. David Loud, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thank you so much. It's so great to be here.
1: Great what to a have great you here. topic
2: for a podcast.
1: I love it. No, I appreciate your time. I know how busy you are, so thank you. Absolutely. So obviously, if there's a prerequisite for a career in Broadway or theater anywhere, it's a love for music. How is the love of music instilled in you, and who do you credit for that?
2: You know, part of that, to me, is a great mystery. Why some people have the, the, the love for music, the talent for music. Uh, I'm sort of content with that being a, a mysterious part of, of, of nature's plan for us all. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I had this desire to, to make music and I was fortunate enough that I hooked up with some very powerful teachers very early in my life, and I really credit them with, with letting me know what, what it was inside me that wanted to come out um, when I was attracted to music and music of a certain kind. My parents, like most middle-class families in the 60s and 70s, had a whole lot of Broadway cast albums in their living room, you know, in, in their little stereo cabinet. And I loved listening to those records more than anything in the world. And you'll hear this over and over and over again by people who are attracted to musical theater, that it's the the cast albums. Uh, you know, we, we live in Cincinnati. We were way far away from the the lights of Broadway. But I knew that that's where I needed to be. Wherever that music was being made, I wanted to be there. I had this wonderful piano teacher, Miss Korn, who... Um, She sort of talked way above my head every now and then, and I kind of understood what she was saying about about music when I was six, seven years old, taking piano lessons from her. Um, She took it very seriously, and she said some, some things to me that really reverberated much later in my life. You know, as a teacher, sometimes you're in that position of you say these things over and over, and eventually the person understands what you've said. And it may be years later, as it was in my case with her.
1: You started directing music shows in the seventh grade. You just mentioned how you knew that the lights on Broadway are where you had to be. Where did that confidence come from? And how did you convince others to let you take charge like that in middle school?
2: Good question. I wish I had that same, that same confidence now. I, <laughs> I just stood up and started telling people what to do. I'm not a particularly bossy person in, in real life, but in theater, it just always seemed like like I knew I knew what it was I wanted to say, and and that confidence gave me an authority over people much older than me. It happened when I when I became um, the music director at uh, the Surflight Summer Theater, which is this non-equity summer stock theater that I worked in for two summers. And I was all of a sudden in charge of, I I think I was 20, my first summer there. And I was in charge of a company much, much older than I was. And it just, it felt very natural to me to be in charge. And I think because I felt comfortable with it, they felt comfortable with it. And nobody assassinated me, which is (laughs) refreshing. (laughs) win. Yes. Yeah.
1: So you went to Yale University and earned a degree in music. The music park made sense, of course,
2: but why Yale? Well, Yale was attractive for a number of reasons to me. I loved the campus and I had dear friends from, from high school going there. And also it was close to New York. And I knew that I wanted to keep my connection to New York uh, alive and well during my time in, in college. I don't know how I knew exactly that that it was going to be important, but it turned out to be very important to me. Uh, And because I was, because New Haven is, you know, an hour and 45 minutes on the train from Grand Central Station, I was able to um, audition for Merrily We Roll Along, the um, Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim, Hell Prince musical that I made my Broadway debut in while I was at Yale. So my my reasons for picking Yale were actually uh, quite quite important. It turned out
1: just uh, like you said, a quick uh, trip down Metro North to to the end of Grand Central and Broadway.
2: Yes, location, location, location. (laughs) Minor details. I chose my college.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So your first connection with Stephen Sondheim happened in your sophomore year at Yale. Take us through that story and what was going through your mind, as you mentioned, having grown up as a Cincinnati kid, who started music directing in seventh grade.
2: Well, this was an opportunity that presented itself um, completely by fluke to me. I was not pursuing a career as an actor. I was a student at Yale. I was very happy there. It was was my second year. But because I had worked as a messenger at Variety newspaper in New York City over the summers, um, Variety is known as the the, the Bible of showbiz it's the the entertainment business newspaper and I had worked there as a messenger uh, and so I got variety every week in my mail in my Yale uh, mailbox and they had all of the professional auditions listed in variety and I would look at them sort of wistfully sometimes when I would get my my free copy of variety and that's where the ad for the open call from we roll along appeared was in variety and they were looking for young people, ages fourteen to twenty, um, to be in the new Stephen Sondheim musical, which was his follow-up to *Sweeney Todd*, which was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen on Broadway. So this was a personal hero of mine, sort of going into the process. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go to this audition. And I took the train down to New York and got in this endless line that had formed. Outside the studio, I I got there about eight thirty, and the line was out the building and snaking through Schubert Alley, and I mean, I was way away from that door, at eight thirty in the morning, and we inched forward all day long, and I, I finally got into the building around five. And around six, the line just stopped moving, and and we, we weren't seen. Anybody who hadn't made it into the door wasn't seen, but a kindly assistant appeared and took our, our pictures and resumes and. About a week later, I got a call in my dorm room at Yale from Joanna Merlin, who was Harold Prince's casting director, asking if I would audition for Mary Libby Roll Along. They saw that I played the piano and they needed some piano players in the cast, too, exactly. Uh, so, against all odds, I, I I was able to actually audition for Sondheim and Prince and Paul Gimignani and George Firth, the book writer. Um, and I auditioned for Several months, I would go in every two weeks and sing my songs for them. And um, Finally, it came down to about 90 of us one day. We started out at 10 in the morning, and by 5, by five o'clock at night, they'd winded it now to 23. And we were the cast of the next Stephen Sondheim, How Prince musical. It was the most unexpected thing that had ever happened to me, and the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. It was, it was inconceivable how lucky I felt.
1: And he got to be able to not. work
2: with these geniuses on their next musical. I, I still don't understand how it happens. <laughs> still, still hasn't sunk in, has it? It, it hasn't
1: quite. Yeah. It's
2: 40 years later.
1: So we'll talk about your Broadway debut again in a moment. Mm. Composer John Kander and lyricist Fred Ebb were a team who staged musicals included Cabaret in Chicago. They also scored Martin Scorsese's movie, New York, New York. How and when did you connect with them?
2: Well, that was one of the, the, the nicest things that ever happened to me to, to get involved with Kendra and Ed while they were still writing was such a privilege and a, and a inspiration for me. Um, I had done a play up in the Portland stage company in, in Portland, Maine. And the, the, the play was it's called Billy Bishop Goes to War and it's a wonderful Canadian play for two actors. One actor plays 18 parts, men, women, all different ages, and the other actor plays the piano and does a, a couple of scenes with him and we, we sang a few songs together. And it's about the World War I flying ace Billy Bishop. And the the other actor in that in that production was uh, Scott Ellis who Right after that production, b- became uh, a Broadway director. And when you're a Broadway director, you generally want to work with people you know. And so he very kindly brought me along on his career. And I, he gave me five Broadway musicals, including my Broadway debut as a music director. And we just bonded as a, as a team that was, we were always so happy to work together. And, you know, it's the people who, who you bond with when you're coming up in the business that That you end up collaborating with later on in your life, too. Because everybody wants to work with people they're comfortable with. And when you find good people, you keep them.
1: (laughs) And Kander Neb's most famous song is New York, New York. And I believe there's a person alive on the planet who hasn't heard Frank Sinatra's version. And as my listeners know, I'm a diehard Yankee fan. I hope to hear that a lot this year because they played at home games at home wins at Yankee Stadium. So I hope to hear a lot more of those. That's great.
2: What do you feel when you're in the presence
1: of such greatness like that?
2: Well, it's it's hard to fathom sometimes because John Kander, uh, who's the composing half of Kander and Ebb, is the most humble, normal, everyday guy you'd ever want to meet. He's, he's actually 95 right now. He is healthier and has more energetic than I am. Uh, he's quite extraordinary. And he's just... He's just the best person you ever met and, and the humblest and the kindest. And it doesn't feel like greatness. It doesn't feel like anything magisterial to be in his presence. It's, it's more like, oh, this is the person I wish I I wish I could really truly be. Uh, he, he's, he's miraculous. And he still plays the piano with this incredible force. He just can put his hands onto the keyboard and music comes out and his brain either likes it or waits for something better to come along if he's in the composing mood. We just did a, a little workshop of a new piece. Uh, and he, he's a fountain of creativity. It never stops. He, he describes it as a river of music in his brain that is always running. That's incredible. Through, mentioned- through my uh, association with Scott Ellis, Scott actually introduced me to Kander and Ebb and, we did a show called "And The World Goes Round" Off-Broadway using their songs. And they took a real fancy to that show and sort of adopted me. And John asked if I would music direct his next show and I music directed his next four shows. Couldn't have been, couldn't have been nicer.
1: You've mentioned a couple of times doing different summer theaters. What's that like for you know, an aspiring or a new actor in terms of you go to Broadway, then you go somewhere for summer stock theater. And what's life like as you do that? And how does it prepare
2: you going forward? <laughs> for a life in show business you have to be ready to you have to you have to realize that you're actually joining the circus <laughs> you know there there's going to be there are going to be moments of great pleasure and joy and uh, glamour but there is also going to be just like the worst jobs you ever had in your life in little theater companies with no money and no audience and no reason for existence, really. Um, and that's showbiz. You know, one minute you're doing it on Broadway, and six months after I made my Broadway debut in the new Stephen Sondheim, Hal Prince musical, Merrily Be Roll Along, I was music directing non-equity one week summer stock on Long Beach Island, um, <laughs> playing second piano in the, in the terrible little orchestra pit that they had at this dump of a theater called, called Surflight. And it was actually a, a wonderful summer for me because we did 12 shows in 12 weeks. So I really learned 12 scores that summer as a music director and that, that was very valuable. And I came back the next summer as a music director and I learned another 12 musical theater scores. And as frustrating as, theater like that can be where there's never enough time and you're never working with you know the finest. It's not like working with the Royal Shakespeare Company for a week, you know. These are kids on their way up and people with as much to learn as I had to learn and we all sort of learned it together. I would say that about half the shows we did were, were quite terrible. But the other half weren't that bad. <laughs>
1: 51% to win, right? We'll be
2: right back with David Loud. I'll be
1: right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com/forward/slash/voiceamerica.
0: The White House doctor makes house calls. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. listening to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at forward.com now back to this week's show
1: and we are back with david David Loud after a short uh, technological hiccup, thanks to the modern miracle of Zoom and, and all this COVID stuff we're dealing with. So David, before the break, we'd mentioned Stephen Sondheim several times, obviously one of the most important figures in 20th century musical theater. He began his career writing the lyrics for West Side Story and Gypsy and essentially reinvented the American musical. He went on to write the music and lyrics for host of the best known Broadway productions and received more awards than we have time to list here, including eight Tonys and eight Grammys. You had that connection during your sophomore year at Yale. When did you start working with with him again, and how did that come about?
2: Well, it it was it was one of the happiest things that ever happened to me, which was I was able to transform my relationship with him, as you know, an actor in a in a failed musical of his after my Meryl experience, into working for him as a music director. Once I. Once I really f- figured out that that's where I belonged in the business, which is part of what happened to me during Mary Loubie Roll Along. As fun as it was to be up on the stage singing and dancing, I, I realized that I didn't have the talent that it took to be a professional actor in New York. The people around me in the, in the cast did, but I did not. And it occurred to me that what, the person in the room that I really wanted to be was the music director, the guy down there on the podium. In, in this case, it was Paul Giammimini, who is one of the great Broadway music directors, who um, was really holding the whole production of Merrily together every night, as we were doing scenes that had been rewritten that afternoon, and wearing clothes that we'd never seen before. Um, the, the disasters that happened during the previews of Merrily were legion and legend, because we did a we did a. A new show every single night while they while they fixed it, you know, constantly rewriting, reordering, rethinking, changing, recomposing, re, restaging. It was it was wild. But anyway, um, I realized that I wanted to be a music director, and I changed my my career path to sort of fit that. And I got the opportunity again through Scott Ellis to work with Steve Sondheim on a revival of Company, and I thought that he'd be a little nervous about it. Uh, turning over the reins to one of the Merrily kids <laughs> for that revival of Company. But he was thrilled to, to see me again and was so supportive of, of me as a music director. Uh, we had a magical day with him on, on that revival, where about about two weeks after we started rehearsals, when the cast really knew their music, Steve came in and coached through the whole show with the whole cast. And he talked about you know, exactly how words should be pronounced and what he was thinking and feeling when he wrote certain sections of the show. He gave us all of the secrets to doing the score to company perfectly. And I try whenever I can to pass on those little tidbits, whenever I'm coaching music from that, from that show, because I got it from the horse's mouth and, and it needs to, it needs to spread out in the oral tradition that is theater. You know, and people need to hear those words again, repeated.
1: Sondheim was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein of Rogerson and Hammerstein fame. And he returned the favor by mentoring others, which you just touched on. Right. Did you feel like he was mentoring you? Or did you have more of a sense that you were simply a professional partner or a peer when you worked with him?
2: Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. He's, Sondheim is such a natural teacher. And he has such a respect for teachers. Uh, that was part of his... That's just who he was. And it isn't that he would lecture you and try to educate you while you were working with him, but you couldn't help but learn from working with him because he was so smart and so... Uh, just inspiring. I I was always a little bit more nervous around him than I than I wish I had been. I would love to have been able to relax and use that seventh-grade confidence of mine <laughs> <laughs> to become his best friend. <laughs> but... Uh, I didn't become his best friend, but I I did get to work with him on about four different shows after Merrily. So that that was quite wonderful.
1: There's a story that composer and lyricist, Adam Goodell, the grandson of Richard Rogers, tells about the time when he was 14 years old and showed his work to Sondheim. He expected to receive a lot of compliments, but instead, as he described it, Sondheim, quote unquote, had some very direct things to say. And as the story goes, sondheim later wrote an apology saying he thought he was being constructive but realized he was not very encouraging you're of course older when you worked with Stephen sondheim but what was it like to work with him you know the sort of person he was was he very direct And was there a challenge to working with him
2: that's such an interesting story about adam adam ghetto who was one of my my favorite composers uh, he, Adam wrote the music and lyrics for A Light in the Piazza on Broadway, which is just a brilliant score. And as with any artist, uh, when you play your work for someone, you're, you're naked and you, you're very vulnerable. That's a very vulnerable moment. And I'm sure Steve thought he was doing Adam a huge favor by being honest and truthful about his material. But sometimes you, you, there has to be a little sugar to help them. The Medicine go down. And it's, it's interesting that Steve sort of realized in retrospect that he hadn't quite uh, supplied enough sugar with the medicine. But I find that Steve's directness when he talks about his own music is very helpful. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't need to go to beat around the bush to say this is too fast or I can't understand that or why did you why did you do it this way. Uh, I, I like the directness of his approach and I feel like it saves time and um, I have no problem with with the way Sondheim was quite direct and quite firm about the way he wanted certain things. But it can be hard to hear that if you're all tender and vulnerable and just spent six months writing a song.
1: <laughs> so to that point, how did it feel to adapt and interpret Sondheim's music? you know, there must have been pressure due to his popularity as a music writer.
2: It was a, it was a real challenge, um, because I, I feel as an arranger, and it's something I do a lot, which is work with composers, uh, adapting their material into another form or, uh, creating a concert of music by a certain composer, you know, as an arranger, there are certain liberties I'll take or won't take. And it's finding that line, uh, as to how much I'm gonna do with the music exactly the the way the composer wrote it or find a new way to do it that that maybe illuminates something different about it. And with Sondheim's work, you gotta be very, very careful and that line is um, perhaps a little firmer than with some other composers because Sondheim writes out every single note that he wants in an accompaniment. He doesn't just write chords and a lead sheet, he writes, you get all the info from him for how he wants it. But he, he's also quite open to new interpretations of his music. And on Sondheim on Suntime, which is the, the show that I did with James Lapine, where we had filmed interviews with Suntime and then live performances that Broadway singers did in between the filmed interviews, I did arrange his material quite extensively and he was, he was great with it. If I went too, too far, he just told me and I would rein it back.
1: <laughs> so we spent a lot of time so far talking about Sondheim, but of course, during your career on Broadway, you've worked with many other famous and accomplished people. Two that come to mind are Angela Lansbury and David Hyde Pierce. What was it like to work with them and who are your other favorite people to work with and why?
2: Well, Angela Lansbury, uh, we did we did a the very first reading of a Broadway musical called *The Visit* together, and she was playing the uh, Claire Zukanasi, the, the the leading lady of that very strange play. And it was remarkable to see somebody so lovable, as lovable as Angela Lansbury, playing the richest, meanest woman in the world, which is the character that that is the the center of of the play, *The Visit*. Uh, and she comes back to the town that she grew up with, and she's become quite wealthy. And she basically buys the death of her her boyfriend when she was there, who had done her wrong. And she wants revenge on him. It's a dark, scary musical, and Angela was incredible in the reading. And she was very she knew exactly what she was doing. She was very um, she used her own personality in such an interesting way, adapting it to this other character. I'd never quite seen anybody do that, sort of use their celebrity in a way to to, inf- to to just illuminate how appalling this character that she was creating was. Very interesting to see her. Uh, she ended up not doing the show on Broadway. We did it with Cheetah Rivera, which was, who was wonderful in quite a different way. But I've always wondered what that, what that might have turned into if Angela had stayed with it. David Hyde Pierce, who you mentioned, is simply the nicest, kindest, funniest, warmest, one most wonderful person on Broadway. He um, seems to take it upon himself uh, as a personal responsibility that everybody in the room is gonna have the best experience of their lives on any show that he is a part of. And he's just, he throws parties, he writes poems for you on your birthday, He remembers, you know, the the middle name of your mother-in-law the second time <laughs> he meets her. <laughs> He's an extraordinary uh, presence to have on a musical. And we had him on Curtains. And he won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. And you've never seen a company of, of people happier to have their star win an award than, than we were for for David on, on Curtains. Because he had just made our lives so so terrific. Those two years that we did Curtains on Broadway were heaven on earth.
1: As we focus on well-being, persevering through adversity and personal empowerment on the show, your first Broadway play you acted in, Merrily We Roll Along, as you mentioned, was a flop. Right. What did the play's failure teach you about success and
2: failure on Broadway? Well, I think it's a great idea to start your career with a big stinking flop. (laughs) It's, um, it's, uh, it makes you really um, appreciate later on in your life when you have some success, what exactly it means. Uh, because it was devastating when that show closed, after two weeks. Uh, all the work that we'd put into it, all the hopes and dreams, and you know the years spent writing it, and rewriting it, and rewriting it. When a show closes, they're just gone. It's over. There's nothing left. Um, and when I did have success later in my career, you know, with a show like Ragtime, or Curtains, or... Uh, the play Master Class that I did with Terrence McNally, uh, you really understand what it is you've got if you've been through the worst that Broadway can give you. Um, and I think that the experience of Marilyn was, as difficult as and disappointing as it was, was also incredibly educational for me because I was watching the the finest talents in New York wrestle and struggle with this difficult, complicated show that had uh, you know, distinctive challenges that they, they, they came in every single day trying to make it better. And I would go home and think, well, what would I do to make it better? And I'd have my ideas and I'd come in and see their, their ideas. And it was, oh, I guess that's why you're Steven Sondheim and I'm <laughs> not yet. <laughs> But for me, it was a graduate school course in how to work on a troubled musical. And I, I just listened and learned. Whenever I could, I, I would hide in the back of rooms. You know, people wouldn't know I was there. I'd just kind of curl up under a coat somewhere and, and listen and eavesdrop and figure out what everybody was doing. I, I wanted to learn more.
1: You've worked as an actor, musical director, and conductor. Mm-hmm. What are the similarities and important differences between those roles.
2: Well, that's interesting. Um, as an actor in a musical, you're you are know, you're, you're in this you're in this community of people who can express themselves so fluidly and so easily. It's a it's a beautiful place to to come to work every day in a community of people. Who have gathered to tell a story I mean that's really my religion I was raised without any religion at all and when I when I look for the divine in life that's where I find it in a group of actors um, and artists you know gathered to to rehearse the story that they want to put on uh, as, the, as the conductor of a musical I am both a performer and a creator you know, I'm, I'm in charge of the music. I'm the one who's telling everybody what to do musically, but I'm also a musician. So people are listening to my work and responding to it. And when you're on the podium at a Broadway show, you exist at the center of three distinct worlds. You've got the actors up in front of you, you know, towering over you. You see their shoes mostly. They sing out over your head. Below you, right in front of you is the orchestra. They're crammed into the pit, uh, you know, how, how, how many musicians you can stuff in a Broadway pit is seems to be an ever-increasing number <laughs> without giving them any more room. And you feel the the audience is there too. They're right behind me as the conductor and I can feel them on the back of my neck. You feel what they're thinking and what they're feeling, whether they're ahead of the story, whether they're not understanding the story. And to, to be in that sort of vibrating focus of those three worlds is quite electrifying and i I always find it overwhelming just the joy that i feel in that spot it's a privileged place to be
1: you've worn so many different hats how do you adapt to each role and can you translate to our audience the value of adaptability in business and life
2: Wearing different hats, or being a, a multi-hyphenate, I guess, is the, 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 the current word for that. It's, it comes naturally to me for some reason. I've, I've always been happy sort of slip-sliding between careers in musical theater. You know, I, I always liked to find roles that needed an actor who played the piano, or a pianist who could say a few lines, or a conductor who had a little song, as I did in curtains. It's it's been a it's been nice for me to tour around the different things that one does in a musical, um, and I think it it only informs my work as a conductor to to have experience as an actor. I think I'm sure I'm a better conductor because I've stood on stage and been conducted. Um, and again, it's not that huge a, an art form. There aren't that many things to do, but I like doing all the different things. It's fun that way.
1: A teacher once told you music has consequences. What did they mean? And what did you take from those words?
2: Well, that was Miss Korn, who, when I was six years old, said to me, David, you're playing by rote. You're not thinking about your you're not thinking about the notes you're playing. And she was right. I, I wasn't. I was I was just doing what was on the paper. And she she made me th- realize that. That music, uh, music needs to proceed from note to note with direction, with thought, with care, and with feeling. Uh, it's a that was a big lesson to understand when I was six years old. But I knew what she was saying in a way. She said that music matters, and. Since I've made my career in music, I, I agree with her. And I think ultimately she was saying, music is so important. How could you ever turn your brain off, your heart off, and just play the, play the notes? You can't do that. You have to invest them with the feeling and the thought and the care with which they were written. And that, that's, been a, that's been a life's work, realizing that music has, music has consequences. Music affects us. Music affects our emotions. It, you know, we hear it and we feel a certain way. We, we sing it and we feel a certain way. I conduct it, it, you know, it transforms me. Music is powerful. And she let me know that very early.
1: What advice do you have for anyone who aspires to a career in acting or music today?
2: Well, my first my first reaction to that is always if there's anything else you want to do, please go do it. Because it's such a hard life to be an actor, to be in musical theater in New York City, especially right now with you know the, the incredible challenges that our community faced over the pandemic and the shows all the shows struggling right now to stay to keep open a couple nights a week. Uh, it's a hard place to make a living and it's it hasn't gotten any easier over the last couple of years. But when I wanted to be in show business and was asking around for advice, people said the same thing to me and of course, I didn't pay them the slightest bit of attention because if you wanna be, be in show business, you're gonna be in show business. It seems to be unstoppable. And if you really have to do it, I would say just, Come to terms with who you really are, because show business is not a place to hide. You need to embrace what is different about yourself, what is odd and strange and quirky and personal, and the things that you may be the most embarrassed about may be the most interesting things about you. And as long as you're telling the truth as an artist, you're going to be okay. But that's a hard thing to do.
1: You've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. You wrote in your book, Facing the Music, a Broadway memoir, that even before the diagnosis, you knew on the opening night of Curtains, something was very wrong. What did you think was going on at that time?
2: Well, I've always been very, very good at ignoring bad news and focusing on the positive. And that's gotten me uh, through a lot of things in a very, very good way. But it's a terrible personal trait when it comes to dealing with health. And, and there were things going on with my body that I was just completely ignoring as Curtains was gearing up for its Broadway opening. And I, I found on opening night that I was conducting with only one arm and that my body had changed in a way that was now affecting my work. And I went to a physical therapist and he suggested I see a neurologist and I was like, Why would I go to to a neurologist for a shoulder injury? I went into his office and he said, how long have you had Parkinson's? And I said, what? I had no idea. But he knew just from looking at me that I had it. It It was a distressing and difficult way to hear that diagnosis. But he got right to the point and then I couldn't ignore it anymore. And it was very difficult for me. I wanted to, to, to hide it, to deny it as much as I could. I kept it a secret for as long as I could. Um, and that was a horrible way to live one's life. But I was so scared that I wouldn't get jobs, that, I, that people would be done with me as a conductor. Because it was clearly going to affect my conducting. We conduct with our bodies, you know, that's our instrument. And my body was not working the way it was supposed to. It soon became clear that i could not hide it and when i finally started telling people that i had been diagnosed with parkinson's they all said oh thank god you, you finally told us now we can figure out how to help you and people were incredibly kind and jobs kept coming and i, I conducted one more show on broadway after that and was not nearly as catastrophic to come out with my Parkinson's as I had thought it was gonna be. Uh, Since I decided I really couldn't do eight shows a week anymore, I've been teaching at the Manhattan School of Music and that's been a source of great joy for me. I love teaching and sort of never expected to have to find another profession other than conducting, but I I happen to love it just as much, so lucky me.
1: Well, that's a perfect, Perfect timing and segue for me to give the shout out to who connected us because I think she's listening. So Maddie B connected us and just want to give her a shout out to thank her uh, for this incredible conversation we've been having. So you've been called the Ted Lasso of the theater business. (laughs) Ever the optimist, which I I love that because that was the one show I binge watched throughout the pandemic. (laughs) Do you believe that optimism influences your health and well-being? And if so, how?
2: I do. I do. I feel like The attitudes that we come into a room with when we are working or collaborating or um, rehearsing or performing, we bring our energy into the room as artists and we have to connect with other people. I mean, that's what, that's what the business of theater is about. It's about connecting with people and creating music together, creating theater together, telling a story. And your attitude is everything. I don't want to work with people who have a false sort of Pollyanna ish sense of the world, but we need to find joy and happiness and fulfillment in the work that we're doing. And for me, that starts with an optimistic sort of blessing as we start each day, wanting to do my best and wanting to bring out the best in other people. I don't necessarily think about Ted Lasso each morning, but.
1: <laughs> that's okay. <It's> <laughs> Wait for career. season next <laughs> season.
2: <laughs> that's right.
1: You've had such an amazing career. Is there any role that you wish you'd done or something that's still ahead that you've been looking forward to doing for a long time?
2: Uh, you know, so many of my dreams came true and came true so early. I was so lucky to have, you know, a Broadway show on my resume when I was 20 years old. Oh, and by the way, it was with Steven Sondheim. It seems gritty to ask for more.
1: (laughs) So I'm sure you have many great years ahead of you, but how do you want to be remembered in terms of your life's work?
2: Well, I'd love to be known as somebody who made music matter. Uh, That's something I I truly believe. And I I take music very seriously. And um, I, when I teach what I'm basically doing is trying to inspire people to feel about music the way I feel about music and to feel about theatre the way I feel about theatre And I make my students read the books that got me all excited about the business and I hope that it transfers into them and and that they can feel some of what some of the inspiration that I feel in making music and making theatre and finding where those two goals uh, intersect and if I can convince you that something is great because I explain it a certain way or uncover a certain truth about it, uh, then uh, that that's, that's a thrill for me.
1: David, we're coming to the end of a fascinating conversation. Right. Any final advice for people in our audience to be the best that
2: they can be? Oh, my. I don't know if I'm the best person to give that kind of advice, but... If you truly love what you're doing, and that's a that's a place of that's a place of great privilege to be, um, then I think it's a little easier to inspire others. Uh, and I think you need to search for what it is that truly gives you joy in the world, so that you can you can bring lift other people along with you. Um, that's that's always been my modus operandi you know i try to try to align myself with a show i love with music i love with people i love and uh try to lift lift everybody up as we uh as we all try to try to succeed
1: there's a song by uh, country singer luke bryan that uh, in the verse says do what you love but call it work there it you sounds go. like what you just did
2: exactly do what you love call it work he's had it much better than i did <laughs>
1: David Loud, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: My pleasure. My pleasure.
1: David Loud's book, Facing the Music, a Broadway Memoir, is available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Goodreads.com, and and through other fine booksellers. Be sure to pick up a copy for you and your friends. And as always, thank you to our listeners and viewers for tuning into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader in the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.